when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Election Countdown, your regular update on the UK's impending general election from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be talking about the third week of the campaign, covering the row between the Conservative parties and the BBC, Donald Trump's visit to the UK, the Brexit party slamming down more candidates, Jeremy Corbyn's latest travails on anti-Semitism, and our interview with John McDonnell. Plus, we'll be hearing more reports on the road to see how the campaign is going in key marginal seats of Peterborough and Kensington. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, columnist Robert Shrimsley, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green, Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard and Political Correspondent Laura Hughes. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Election Countdown, then do subscribe to receive it through all the usual channels. And we also appreciate a nice review. So the election campaign rode into its final week and it was a busy one. We had the NATO summit where Storm Donald Trump came into the UK and left without too much trace. The FT interviewed John McDonnell, who said Labour wouldn't enter into coalition with any other parties. And Labour was once again engulfed in a row about anti-Semitism and the Tory party had its own travails about tax. Miranda Green, let's begin by looking at the general state of where the campaign is now, that we've seen a gentle narrowing of the opinion polls this week. But fundamentally, I hate to say, but nothing really has changed that much, that both the parties have stuck very much to their messages, nobody's announced anything particularly new, and the trajectory of the election feels a lot like it did last week. Well, except that I fear what you're describing sounds a bit dull and actually it's incredibly exciting for politics watchers because you've got this unprecedented around 20% of undecided voters and you've got enormous volatility in terms of who's going to vote for which party depending on which region of the UK you live in. And actually I feel as if as we're coming into the final days of the campaign, although there's been no sort of moment which has caught fire, in fact... There's still a lot to play for in the final days. And I think you'll see ramping up of some of the more aggressive targeting of particular sets of voters by the main parties. And I think a lot of people won't decide how to vote until the final hours. And that's why it makes it incredibly difficult to call. Because I think that's the overwhelming theme of this election, that people don't like Jeremy Corbyn. A lot of people don't like Boris Johnson. And they're trying to decide in many ways who is the least worst option. And I'd say my time's out and about completely reflect that, that amount of undecided you talked about. Also, I think, you know, the extent to which there are peculiar micro fights going on, not just within regions, but within seats. You've got the whole question of whether pro-unionist tactical voting will work for both the Tories and the Lib Dems in Scotland, whether the SNP may have slightly overplayed their hand. I think it's all rather fascinating. And on the night, it could go lots of different ways. I think if we have had a moment, I suppose this week it was Andrew Neil, the BBC inquisitor in chief, blasting the prime minister for not turning up to face half an hour's questioning. But will that actually be enough to take the shine off the Tory lead in the last few days? It's quite a big assumption to make. 
Well, let's dig into the Andrew Neil and Raoul Robert Shrimsley because Andrew Neil, who is the veteran BBC presenter, has done these series of half an hour interviews which are highly focused on policy and on detail and they've proved pretty embarrassing for nearly everyone who's done them. I think Nicola Sturgeon probably came out the most unscathed. Jeremy Corbyn took the most damage from his interview. Joe Swinson didn't do particularly well but didn't come out too badly. And I don't agree, actually. I thought she did OK and she gets points for turning up considering the Prime Minister wouldn't. Exactly, and Nigel Farage also turned up and did his interview as well. But Boris Johnson decided not to, Robert. Why did he not do it, and how damaging do you think it is? Well, it's a really interesting, fine judgment. Miranda says Joe Swinton gets points for turning up, and of course, in one sense, that's true. But if you know you're going to get your lights beaten out, there are some points in not turning up as well. I think that it plays to the point that people have about Boris Johnson, that he's not to be trusted, that he dodges scrutiny, and this was the whole tenor of Andrew Neil's challenge to him at the end of his final interview when he said Boris won't come, we wanted to ask him about trust. I think it will be damaging. It's been shared heavily on social media. On the other hand, it may well be less damaging than 30 minutes of bare-knuckle fighting with Andrew Neil. And that's the calculation they've made. I think Boris Johnson's character is probably priced into this election already. And the people who are minded to vote for him already know this. And the point is, they don't trust any politicians. And this is a fundamental issue that it's not as if the other four are hugely trusted and Boris Johnson is not. The general public assume all politicians lie and all politicians are not to be trusted. And I think when you look at the character of the two main protagonists here, most voters know that Boris Johnson is not to be trusted, except perhaps on getting Brexit done. But they look at Jeremy Corbyn and their analysis, he's weak. I was talking to a pollster a couple of days ago and he said to me, Everyone assumes that people don't like Jeremy Corbyn because of his political agenda, because of all the things he wants to do. Actually, the main objection they have to him is that they think he's weak and won't be a good leader. So to that end, Boris will take some blows for this, but I don't know that he's made the wrong decision. There is a question, of course, about whether this has turned out exactly as the Conservative campaign wanted it to, because as you said, Robert, there was that fine judgment about the damage of doing the interview versus the damage of not doing it. And we've got George Parker, who is somewhere in the bowels of Kent at the moment with Boris Johnson. What's been the mood this morning, George, with the Prime Minister? Is there any sense you've got there from the campaign staff is that they're at all concerned about how this Andrew Neil thing has played out? We should point out it's had over 4 million views already and it was on the 10 o'clock news last night and every bulletin since. I'm speaking to you actually from the Conservative battle bus right next to the toilet. So it's a very glamorous existence I've got here. But certainly the fact that this has become, as Miranda said, one of the stories of the week, I think has caused some concern amongst Conservative officials. Was it the right fight to pick? Was Andrew Neil the right person to pick the fight with, given the fact that he gave what I thought was quite a well-judged monologue straight into the camera challenging the Prime Minister to come and face this interrogation. So I think there is a bit of anxiety about it. Have they picked the right fight? It's a very fine judgment, as Robert was saying earlier. But nevertheless, Boris Johnson down in Kent is sticking doggedly to the message. He went to a bakery in the constituency of Finchley earlier today, where he had a convenient photo opportunity with a local Hasidic Jewish community, which they think went extremely well, and they came away with some donuts. So I'd say the mood is still pretty upbeat. So the other big news, of course, Miranda, this week was the NATO summit, which was thought might dominate this election campaign and was one of the factors the Conservative Party was concerned about, that if 
Donald Trump came over here, endorsed Boris Johnson or got into a row with Jeremy Corbyn or Sadiq Khan, then that could throw things off course. But in fact, the whole thing was a bit of a damp squib that Donald Trump came over. He said the NHS wasn't on the table. Even if it was handed on a silver platter to America, they wouldn't want it. And he actually just left the UK without even holding his customary big press conference at the end. So on that basis, I think the Tories are pretty relieved. Yeah, I mean, a damp squib is exactly what they were hoping for. So they'll be well pleased that the president of the US departed without even sending one of his inflammatory tweets from the plane home. So they got away with it. And also, I think it plays to this issue, which has come to dominate the last stages of this election campaign, which is really this idea of these two characters and who ends up in Downing Street, which is, of course, exactly how the two main parties want it. They've successfully squeezed both the Lib Dems and the Brexit Party out of the conversation. Obviously, Brexit Party has stabbed itself in the front. But this idea of Boris Johnson managing to handle a NATO summit as host without any big disasters, that also helps him. You know, historically, when pollsters ask this question, who is more prime ministerial? Obviously, it's a huge advantage if you are already the prime minister. And so hosting a summit where you manage to keep some quite tetchy Western Alliance members from actually grabbing each other around the throat won't have hurt him. I think the question on the NHS as well, this has been the main danger for the Tory party throughout this campaign. Could Labour divert the conversation about Brexit? Brexit onto the idea that Trump is after the NHS and wants to privatise it for the benefit of US corporations. And that was sort of quite successfully neutralised. So I would say the Tory parties actually had, apart from the Andrew Neil tirade, had quite a good week and they'll be well pleased going into the weekend where we'll have a new set of detailed polling, probably Monday. And then we'll be into a discussion of the last minute squeeze and whether the Labour Party and the Tory party in the seats where they need to can really bear down on the minority parties to get that final advantage. Just to pick up something Miranda said there about the fact that he appeared prime ministerial, certainly all the opinion polls suggest that Boris Johnson is regarded as more prime ministerial than Jeremy Corbyn. It's been one of the things that surprised Boris Johnson's own team, which is how successful he's been on the international stage so far in his short premiership, including quite a difficult G7 summit in Biarritz, which you were at, of course. And I think actually he looked pretty good on the world stage then hosting this NATO meeting in Watford this week. It helps to have low expectations, of course, George. Indeed, because Boris Johnson, when he was Foreign Secretary, had a slightly questionable record on the world stage, but he does seem to have slightly grown into it as Prime Minister. Now, Robert, the other thing that did boost the Conservative Party this week was the Brexit Party, which, as with anything that involves Nigel Farage, eventually descends into infighting and people getting very annoyed with each other. And four of its most prominent MEPs decided to quit the party this week and essentially say vote Conservative to get Brexit delivered, which is a message the Tories love, but it's a little bit too late because the Brexit party candidates are standing and there's no way for them to actually stand down even if they wanted to. Well, it undoubtedly does help. You know, one of the things I thought would happen in the final week was we would start to see Brexit party people saying, look, you've got to vote Conservative. I think the polls are slightly flattering the Conservatives in the sense of squeezing the Brexit party vote. In the, the national poll shows that Brexit party at 4%, but it could be doing much better in the regions where it's actually standing. And I think that Miranda touched on this at the very beginning. There are about 150 key local battles taking place in this election, and every single one of them is subject to quite small variations. Where the Brexit party stood aside, for example, in Scotland, it's made a huge difference to the Tory party. If they hold most of their seats, it will be because the Brexit party isn't standing. But in the key places, it could still hurt the Conservatives. They still have the capacity to do damage. On balance, though, I think the voters have got the message 
that if Brexit is your primary concern and leaving is your primary concern, then you really do only have one choice. And then, Miranda, earlier in the week, the thing that has really caused issues for Labour's campaign has been anti-Semitism once again. And this was a leaked document from the Jewish Labour movement, which is the big pro-Jewish movement within the Labour Party. And their submission to the investigation by the Equality and Human Rights Commission was leaked. And it was a truly appalling document. And the level of abuse and racism outlined there was horrifying. You know, supporters of Mr Corbyn have always said this is a small issue, this is a minority issue to a small part of the party. For me, when I read that document, it was entirely blown apart and there's been no official response from the leadership. Very depressingly, it's probably not going to affect the campaign, but it did just highlight that this is a very active issue for Mr Corbyn and no doubt will play a big role in Friday night's TV debate. Yes, absolutely. It's an extremely serious issue. But as you say, over the course, not just of this short campaign, but over the last few months, The issue has been interpreted along horribly partisan lines and those who are already sold on Jeremy Corbyn really won't hear a word against him on this issue. And also it's back to, as we were discussing over the standoff between Andrew Neil and Number 10 Downing Street, there's a very low level of trust in the media and a lot of the Corbynite left really do think this is some sort of put-up job and it's really hard to fight that. What I would hope is that On the other side of polling day, when the Labour Party's looking at its future and who might take up the baton from Jeremy Corbyn, that the next Labour Party leadership gets to grips with this issue because it's really a sort of moral red line for a lot of voters. And If I could jump in, maybe I was getting ahead of what you were about to say, Miranda. The reason anti-Semitism matters in the election is not because there's a huge wellspring of sympathy on the issue, because people who are very, very agitated about racism in politics can point to problems in the Conservative Party. The reason I think this plays so badly for Jeremy Corbyn and can still be damaging because it goes to the point of weak leadership that I was touching on earlier, which is that a better leader would have dealt with this by now. And I think that's where it's a problem for him, less in the specific concern about the issue than on the, the suggestion that it shows he's a man who can't get a grip. And then, Robert, you also spoke to John McDonnell this week, just rattling through the topics, who's the shadow chancellor, could be chancellor by this time next week. And he outlined how Labour would look towards forming a government if it doesn't win a majority, because the current state of the poll suggests Labour won't win a majority next Thursday and they will have to form some kind of alliance or try and govern as a minority party. How do they see that working out? Yeah, talking about people who can get a grip. John McDonnell certainly is someone who has got a grip on how parties work. Their basic strategy is this. Obviously, they're still hoping to win. If the Conservatives end up as the largest party, but they cannot form a government because they've got no allies in Parliament, you know, in the mechanics of a hung Parliament, the Tories would get the first go in those circumstances. But assuming they can't do it, then you get to the issue of, well, who can? And the Labour Party calculation is that they don't need to go into any kind of coalition or even a deal with the Scottish National Party or the Liberal Democrats or Plaid Cymru or anybody else. Because in the end, what are those parties going to do? They're going to vote down a Labour government and give Boris Johnson another shot. So the calculation that a lot of Labour people are making is we can govern as a minority with really quite a small number of seats because the other parties will not bring us down and we can have our debates on an issue by issue basis. Certainly other parties are going to want a referendum. We've promised it. Now, at some point, the numbers just don't work on this. But I do think 
Labour has a stronger hand in those negotiations than people have always assumed. Because are the SNP really going to bring them down and stop a second referendum? Are the Liberal Democrats going to vote against an increase in the national living wage? I think it's a very, very difficult situation for those small parties. And I think Labour would want to try it that way first. Whether it works, that's a different matter. The other point to make, of course, is that it suits Labour to say this thing because it's trying to knock down the suggestion of what the Conservatives have been calling a coalition of chaos with the SNP, a guarantee of a second Scottish referendum. So it's in their interest to say this, but nonetheless, I think it is an accurate reflection of how they tried to go about it. I think you might be slightly underplaying the campaign usefulness of this message, actually, Robert, because some Labour people have told me that on the doorsteps in Scotland, this idea goes down very, very badly, you know, that there's already been a deal done with the SNP and that they will get their second independence referendum because a lot of the Labour vote in Scotland is actually unionist. And so I think they got themselves in a mess early in the campaign with when did the SNP get their second independence referendum? And they've had to get off the subject. And so it was really important for John Macdonald to say that there would be no deal done with the SNP. I think that's fair, although I think the Labour Party pretty much resigned getting chased out of Scotland, more or less anyway. And finally, of course, we've got on Friday night the big TV debate, which is Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson going head to head. And you have to think this is the last big event of the campaign. Lots of those undecided voters we spoke to will be watching that. By the time you listen to this podcast, the debate will be done. But George Parker, just to give a quick sense of the importance of this particular debate here, because when the two went head to head together, it was a bit of a score draw. Nobody did particularly well either way. But it is Jeremy Corbyn's last moment to try and land some blows on the Prime Minister. Absolutely. He needs a game-changer moment, doesn't he, in this TV debate. And the bus has just arrived in Maidstone where this head-to-head debate is going to take place. And, yes, he needs to perform better than he did in the first debate. That's not to say he didn't perform well, because I think the voters, the viewers, regard it pretty much as a score draw. But given the fact that Jeremy Corbyn was relatively less popular than Boris Johnson going into that debate, that suggests he actually outperformed expectations. He needs to super-outperform expectations in this debate in Maidstone tonight. And as for Boris Johnson, Isaac Levido, uh, the Australian campaign advisor to Boris Johnson, said that the last few days of this campaign should be very much like making the closing case in a criminal case in the courts, you know, just ramming home your core message. And that's what Boris Johnson will be doing, hoping to get out without sustaining any damage. Let's hear some more tales from the campaign trail this week. Jim Picard's been out in Peterborough to listen to some focus groups about undecided swing voters, while Laura Hughes has been out with the Liberal Democrats in the London marginal seat of Kensington, as well as with the DUP and Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland. So, Jim, let's begin with Peterborough. This is a seat that's a classic bellwether to use the poster's favourite term there that's gone between the Conservatives and Labour for many different years and it was taken by Labour at a recent by-election even when the Brexit party came a very strong second almost took the seat and it's one the Conservatives kind of need to win if they're going to form a majority. What was your conclusion from listening to this focus group about undecided voters, about Peterborough and the election generally? Exactly. So as you say, Peterborough, a lot of people will only know it as the kind of the main stop on the way up to York. On the or Newcastle. Indeed, on the East Coast mainline. And for its tremendous cathedral, which I did take some time out to check out the flying buttresses and that kind of thing. Now, the good thing about doing a proper focus group, which was with Britain Things, is that unlike Vox Pops, which I do love doing, and they're very much maligned, and I love going up to complete randoms in Christmas markets and asking them about politics. But the thing about professional focus group is it's a little bit more scientific. And we had eight people sat around a table 
for 90 minutes. So it goes quite deep in the Holiday Inn, just to the west of Peterborough. And they'd picked people who were not particularly tribal, who had voted in different ways in the past and still were not decided. I would say the takeaways from this that really struck me very strongly were massive hostility towards politicians and the establishment. I know we hear it all the time, but when you watch just how disillusioned people are and you listen to them, it's quite something. Secondly, they're not massively into Boris Johnson, don't particularly trust him, don't particularly like the Conservatives, but that message of get Brexit done, they're echoing it one after another. And even those who quite like Labour don't think that Jeremy Corbyn's programme of economic change and change to public services is realistic or something that is possible. And there was an incredible moment when, you know, this goes back to the issue of trust. They were asked the question of which party do you think would be best for the NHS? I thought someone would say Labour because that's what you normally expect. They literally all just laughed because they are so disillusioned. They don't believe anyone is really going to change things for the better. That's a quite troubling message for Labour, though, when you look at it, because this election is being painted as a change election by both political parties here, with Labour promising huge amounts of investment, more borrowing and higher taxes as well. But the Conservatives are also promising change as well. The fact that voters simply say they don't believe anyone's going to deliver that change is a pretty damning indictment of where we are in politics. Well, this is the interesting thing. They do, in general, seem to believe that Boris Johnson can deliver Brexit. So of the two alternatives, do you think that Labour would deliver the massive public services improvements they promise? Do you think that Boris Johnson would deliver Brexit? They sort of see Brexit, and this probably reflects the quite successful marketing or messaging from the Conservatives. They do think that that is an obstacle that can be cleared and that with a majority Tory government, that would be something that could be achieved. Whether they think there's a land of milk and honey beyond that point, probably not. But at least we get past, in their mind's eye, the paralysis and frustration of three and a half years. And when you look at Peterborough itself, what would be your sense? I know we don't like doing predictions, it's very difficult. But looking at where it's at between Labour, the Conservatives and the Brexit Party trailing behind as well. Because when I covered that by-election, I always thought the Brexit Party were going to do well, but it was going to be a struggle for them and that was how it turned out. But it looks as if the Conservatives have really been focusing there on this election. Yeah, so I had a pint with someone on the Labour team yesterday afternoon before I went to the focus group. And it's quite interesting. I don't think I'd quite processed that the Brexit party got 29% last time in this by-election, which people will remember was caused by sort of legal difficulties of the former incumbent Fiona Onasanya. And the Brexit party got 29% then, and they're kind of nowhere now. And I said, reflecting the fact that all across the country, they've just disintegrated. And bear in mind that the by-election was at the same time as the European elections when Farage was riding high... And I said to this guy from the Labour team, well, where do you think the vote came from for the Brexit party back in June? And he said it was probably two to one former Tory supporters. And I said, well, you're in severe trouble, aren't you? If it breaks back the other way, then that means a Conservative victory. Now, obviously, people campaigning for Labour don't like to admit that they're likely to be toast. But I came away last night, wrongly or rightly, thinking that Labour doesn't really have a chance there anymore. It's certainly going to be one of the seats to watch on election night because it's a very sort of middle of the country, a bit Brexity, but still quite middle of the road on most things. Yeah, and I, I should, for the avoidance of doubt, point out that although Britain thinks are brilliant at what they do, you know, when you have a group of eight people, it's quite hard to get the kind of balance that you might get when you're doing an actual opinion poll where you have 1,000 or 2,000 or 20,000 people. So you have to be just a little bit careful about reading too much, even into a very professional focus group. 
Now, Laura Hughes, you've been out and about with the Liberal Democrats, who I think is generally you have accepted have struggled during this campaign due to Joe Swinson, their revoke Article 50 policy. But one seat they are very enthusiastic about is Kensington. Now, that always used to be diehard Conservative. Then in a massive shock in the 2017 election, it was taken by Labour, their candidate Emma Dent Code, who is very much a Corbynista, a lifelong socialist and anti-royalist, took the seat. And obviously, Kensington is where the Grenfell Tower tragedy happened. Now, so the politics there are very complicated. They've got Sam Gima running there, who was a former Tory MP. What did you learn from going out and about with him? Well, the Lib Dem activists that were out and about with Sam were really making the point that if the Liberal Democrats can't win in seats like Kensington, where are they going to win? But the reaction that we had going out door knocking with him was very, very mixed. And I think gives us a real snapshot of why the Liberal Democrats are really struggling to cut through and why they're being squeezed in the polls by both the Conservatives and Labour. It's a very wealthy area and knocking on quite beautiful houses. There were a lot of people who were really interested in what the Liberal Democrats were saying. They really wanted to hear Sam's point of view because they don't like Brexit. They're soft Tories and they don't like Brexit. But the question that kept coming up and the question he was repeatedly asked was, how do you guarantee that a vote for the Lib Dems doesn't get Jeremy Corbyn into number 10 because they are more nervous of a Labour government than they are of Brexit. And I have to say, I haven't heard a single Liberal Democrat really actually answer that question effectively over the last few weeks. And it's the thing that's really going to get them in the end. Because the Tories are doing quite well in the polls, there is a possibility that those flirting with the Liberal Democrats might actually decide to take a bit of a punt and go with Joe Swinson's party at the last minute. But my gut instinct from speaking to lots of people is that when it actually comes to the ballot box and they're in there casting their vote, they're going to be so worried about a Labour government and what that means for them, what it means for business, that they might just go with the Tories really, really reluctantly. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. And it's striking that at the beginning of this whole campaign, the Liberal Democrats were offering Remainers, soft Tories, people really very much like Sam Gima himself, a glimmer of hope. There was a feeling that there was a party that might be able to bring politics back to the centre ground. But that hasn't really happened. And I think one of the reasons for that is that Joe Swinson has taken quite an extremist position. When people were calling out for centre ground, they've talked about revoking Article 50 without recourse to a second referendum. And that has put people off. And yes, their message has shifted. And now they really are talking about the second referendum, they're saying, look, vote Lib Dem, deprive the Tories of a majority, and we will use our influence in Parliament to push for this second Brexit vote. But the problem is they can't tell voters exactly what they would do in a hung Parliament. They just keep saying they'll push for a second Brexit referendum. And that really is the problem, because if there is a hung Parliament and a minority government, they might say they're not going to put either in power, either Jeremy Corbyn or Boris Johnson, In order to get a second referendum, a minority government has to pass a Queen's speech, a finance bill. There's six months before it can happen. So what do the Lib Dems do in that time? You need a government to get a second referendum. And the Lib Dems can't tell voters and they're not telling voters what they'll do. It's a very difficult situation for them. And there's seats like Richmond Park in South London, which is quite a prosperous target seat for the Lib Dems, that the polling we've seen from the MRP and a couple of constituency polls suggest that 
they are very far ahead of that. But you could see voters there very much saying, well, look, actually, I don't like Brexit that much, but I really don't want Jeremy Corbyn, his radical economic agenda coming along and disrupting everything. Can I ask you about Sam Gima, though, particularly on the campaign trail, because he was a pretty prominent conservative minister. He was university's minister. He briefly ran for the Tory leadership, lest we forget, and was one of the party's few ardent advocates of a second referendum. And Lots of Tories I speak to say that fundamentally he is a conservative, but the issue of Brexit has just driven him out of the party. How comfortable does he feel as a Lib Dem? Because if he loses, then it's just quite a fall from high places for him. Yeah, this is the thing that's really fascinating. I actually asked him this very question because a lot of his like-minded conservative colleagues who have stepped down have chosen to run in this election as independents because they don't feel like Liberal Democrats. And I asked him, is the reason that you now identify as a Lib Dem because of Brexit? And he said yes, but he also made the point that he feels that all political parties have changed as a consequence of Brexit and that the Lib Dems have moved on. And he says that they are now the party for business. They are responsible. They're the only ones putting forward moderate and sensible ideas for the economy, something that he thinks the Conservatives aren't doing anymore. And that actually is come out a lot from former Conservatives who are now voting Lib Dem. It's not just Brexit, it's also the economy. They're worried about these very ambitious tax and spending plans. And so it is more than just Brexit. But I would say that actually a lot of the voters that we spoke to, they quite admire the fact that somebody who was a Conservative minister on a very good salary, high prospects, put his principles above anything else that does come through when you talk to him he really does believe what he's saying and what he's doing and that makes him quite personally appealing to a lot of people but again like I say it's one thing liking him and it's another thing to risk Jeremy Corbyn to risk a hung parliament he was really well received actually by quite a lot of people like Jim said there were some who just slammed the door because they said they weren't going to vote for anyone they're so fed up but it's not going to be about Sam Gima and his personality and how popular he is in that constituency. It's going to be the wider picture here that people take into consideration when they actually get into that polling booth. Indeed. Now, Jim, I want to talk to you about one of my experiences on the campaign trail that I haven't covered much Labour in this election, but I went to a Jeremy Corbyn rally on Thursday night in Birmingham. And obviously, Mr Corbyn's whole leadership was based on these rallies where you get hundreds, often thousands of people turning out enthusiastically, clapping and promoting and his policies. Had and he had the drummer from UB40, right. not all of UB40, but had the singer Jamelia and some spoken words artists. And Mr. Corbyn's key message was there's no socialism without music. And going to this rally, it did remind me a lot of 2017 because there had been talk that he wasn't getting the numbers out, they weren't as enthusiastic, but they absolutely loved Jeremy Corbyn in this rally, that every single thing he had was praised and cheered and everybody came away absolutely buzzing, you know, having heard about this different kind of politics that is possible. And the leader himself, when we've seen him on TV, he's been a bit grouchy, tetchy, and not a bit underpowered, some people would say. But when I saw him on the stage, there. He was just the same as I've seen him before, that he was funny, his dry sense of humour, and was very targeted in his attacks. He said there is no place for anti-Semitism or Islamophobia, which got a huge cheer from the crowd there. So, from your experiences from Labour on the campaign trail, do you agree there's still that bit of energy around Corbyn that you just don't see in other politicians and other politics? And yes, it might have waned a bit, but it's still fundamentally the same thing we saw two years ago. 
it's a very, very interesting question that. And I think over the last three or four years, Jeremy Corbyn has had moments where he has thought about giving up. He's had the Parliamentary Labour Party against him, shouting at him at their weekly meetings. He finds himself beset by the mainstream media, probably including us. And when he feels that way, he always knows that he can go out and give a rally or attend an event full of Labour members who still broadly love him to bits like they did from day one. There's obviously still quite a large minority of Labour members who don't like him. But, you know, the Corbynists have taken over the party and they adore this guy. And so he can sort of still reassure himself that he is beloved. But you get a very different attitude when you talk to the general public. And so many candidates have said to me, people really don't like Jeremy Corbyn or they hate him or they think that he's a menace in security terms or they think that he looks like Stepton's son and all this stuff. And I think 2017... A lot of Corbynistas came away from that result, where, of course, Labour gained 30 seats, thinking, wow, actually, the country learned to love Jeremy Corbyn. But people vote for all sorts of reasons. They often vote despite the leader, not because of the leader. And if you look at the polling, the Labour manifesto is much, much more popular than the actual leader. You know, people at this focus group in Peterborough were asked all the usual odd questions, one of which was, what would the politician be doing if they weren't in politics? And I love the answer about Farage, which was that he'd just be sort of sad at home being titivated by a maid with a a duster. And some say, well, Jeremy Corbyn would just be a homeless guy. People don't sort of see him as a prime ministerial figure necessarily. And I've got this amazing quote from one of the people at the focus group. And this, I think, sums up where we are with this election. It is about who you disagree with the least and who is the least worst out of everybody. And so the love for Jeremy Corbyn is very specific and it's contained within the Labour membership. Indeed, the one thing I've been struck about from this election so far is that if Labour had another leader, even if Ed Miliband was leader of the Labour Party now running on maybe a slightly watered down version of Corbyn's manifesto, they'd probably be on course to win this election because there was a tweet by the um, poster James Canagasorium, who's definitely worth following on the election. He said that essentially what Britain wants is a Conservative president and a left-wing parliament because clearly they like Labour's policies, but they like a strong Conservative leader. And you could say in some ways that is what Boris Johnson is offering because his policy platform is quite left wing. But clearly the Achilles here for Labour, much more so than 2017, is Jeremy Corbyn. Well, I'm going to argue with you about whether Boris Johnson's manifesto is left wing. I think when you said it against Labour's manifesto, it's basically the status quo with like a tiny, tiny redistributional element. But in terms of offering change, radical economic reform, Labour has the much more interesting program, whether you like it or not. I think the really interesting question is if Labour loses and they do get rid of Jerry Corbyn and they do replace him with a more moderate or inverted commas right wing leader, but with pretty much the same radical manifesto, that would be very, very hard for the Tories to battle, especially once Brexit is done and they've lost that powerful message of let's just get Brexit over and done with. However, we don't think the Labour members are going to pick someone more right-wing than Jeremy Corbyn, do we? We think that's probably quite unlikely at this moment in time. <laughs> that's it. And very briefly, Laura, here's in one minute. You've been to Northern Ireland this week to look at the fight between the DUP and Sinn Féin in some key seats. Tell us briefly about that. So it's pretty extraordinary that Northern Ireland has been such a big part of the conversation in British politics, and now it feels as though it really has been pushed to the side. This election for the nationalists and also the pro-European parties, it's a chance to punish and get rid of the DUP. So 
you've seen a whole range of these informal alliances propping up across Northern Ireland between the SDLP, Sinn Féin and the Greens to try and unseat the DUP. Two of the MPs that are really quite vulnerable are Emma Little-Pengeli in Belfast South and also Nigel Dodds in Belfast North. So those are the two seats worth watching. The thing that really struck me the most is that there is no party in Northern Ireland that supports the Prime Minister's Brexit deal in this election. This Brexit deal is going to have huge ramifications for Northern Ireland. But if Boris Johnson comes back with a majority, the DUP are not going to have the influence they have in Parliament. Sinn Féin won't because they don't take up their seats. So their voice and the concerns of Northern Ireland are going to be relatively silent compared to how vocal they've been in the last Parliament. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Robert, Miranda, Jim and Laura for joining us. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and might see some more FT journalism, particularly about the election, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. But we also have some good news too, which is that between December the 9th and December the 13th over the election, our election live blog is going to be in front of the paywall. So you can see all of our FT journalism covering the election for absolutely free although we would much prefer if you did pay for it. FT Election Countdown was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Owen McSweeney. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.